Welcome back to Simply Amazing. Um, of course, I'm Tim Ryder from Metsmerize. With me tonight, a uh, very special friend, special guest tonight, uh, author of a brand new book that's out now from Lions Press. It's called The New York Mets All-Time All-Stars, the best players at each each position for the Amazons. My friend Brian Wright. How's it going, buddy? Uh, it's going great, Tim. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, my pleasure, man. I'm really looking forward to it. I uh you sent me over an advanced copy and I absolutely just devoured it. I, I probably had it done in in, in two sittings. <laughs> That's great because it, it would take longer for me to read it. <laughs> yeah, no, I I ate it up, man. I tried to uh I tried to fit it all into a weekend and I had I finished it with time to spare. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, it was really great stuff. Um, Brian, I, I guess this is your second book. Your first one was Mets in Ten, uh, the best and worst of amazing history, which admittedly I haven't gotten into. But if it's if it's anywhere as close to as good as this, I'm sure it's uh, off the charts. But I, I guess go ahead and let's give us a little crash course. What um what what did you put together here? Yeah, a brief synopsis of uh, of this particular book. Uh, so it's a all time team, of course, and uh, specifically uh, I did. Uh, Decided upon a 30-man roster plus a manager, two coaches, which were the honorable mention managers, uh, a general manager, and an owner. Uh, the criteria for selection, specifically with players and managers and coaches, was a combination of impact on the franchise, uh, postseason or big game performances, single season records or career records. Um, longevity, while it was a factor, wasn't as much of a factor uh, as someone that was good or high impact for a uh, sustained period of time. Uh, I used a little creativity with how I structured certain positions and who I put there. Uh, for instance, pitchers, uh, as many of our devout, uh, devoted fans know, the, the, there are, the number of great starters in Mets history is proportionally higher um, than the number of great relievers. So I decided to go with seven starting pitchers out of the ten total uh, as opposed to like a four- or five-man rotation. Um, it was still hard uh, narrowing it down to seven. Um, I made sure not to do a designated hitter, uh, even though that might, you know, who knows, we might do one in a couple of years or maybe even a year from now. Uh, I didn't want to do that because it could lead to a series of, hey, do you take a, you know, a catcher and put them in at DH or do you take a player that's not really good defensively and put them there? So I uh, abstained from using a designated hitter. Uh, I also put the players, since I was um, – asked to organize them by position, and obviously that's what the you know subtitle is. Uh, I put them in the position they played or have played most frequently while as a Met. For instance, I considered Edgardo Alfonso as a second baseman because although he's played, you know, third base and shortstop at times, we most he played a, more games and we know him better as a second baseman. Uh, also, Michael Conforto, I considered him as a left fielder because as of right now, he's played more games in left uh, than in right, and he, you know, he's a corner outfielder, so you can kind of, if you were to make an all-star team, you can kind of place them in either spot. Uh, what I discovered among many discoveries is that there are many different ways to structure a team, such as the way I did it, and there's different criteria you can use, and that's really the beauty of a book like this. It's always evolving, whether it's through opinions by our passionate fan base, or it's evolving over time with the current players either, you know, coming up to make their case for this team or eventually making their way uh, onto it at a later date. Um, so this book to me is far more of a discussion point 
or a starting point for a debate than any kind of final say that I may have on my end. So uh, I, as I always, I always like to say, if, if everyone agreed with what I said, it would probably be a boring book and I don't think I would do, I would have done my job. Uh, so I'm always happy to have people, you know, uh, debate in a friendly manner about who they think should be on there. And like I said, there's different, different criteria for what they, other people might use for an all-time team, whether it's, you know, longevity or popularity. So that's really the fun of, uh, of doing a book like this. Oh, and it really was fun. I mean, and, and I, I did enjoy how you used, like, I guess you incorporated both traditional stats and, um, advanced statistics mm-hmm. into yeah. the, uh, into the equation. And what I really enjoyed, and it's, I think it's going to really play well with the crowd who isn't, who might not be as into advanced stats as some other folks might be. Um, you started the book off with a glossary on some of the advanced terms that, you know, just your casual fan might not be so familiar with. And I think that was just such a great move. And it gives everybody a new, I guess, just a new wrinkle to kind of look, a new lens to look at things through. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed that. And, and, to echo what you were saying about, you know, some tough decisions, um, a, a debate point maybe. I mean, you had some shoe-ins, and I don't want to give away too many spots, but, you know, you had guys like uh, like Tom Seaver at the front of the rotation. Um, like, that's a shoe-in. Now, was it strange for you writing, because, of course, DeGrom's in there, and mm-hmm. knowing that DeGrom could one day overtake Seaver as the best pitcher in franchise history. And that's, that's still possible. And that's mm-hmm. not really reaching uh, too much of a reach, I think in my opinion, but did that cross your mind at all? That like over time, you know, it, this could be uh, a different story for at least this specific part mm-hmm. of the, of, of the tale that you're telling. Yeah, it was, int- it was hard to write um, the story of someone like Jacob Dergram because it's still, you know, uh, we're still adding to it. He's still adding to his, his Mets legacy. And it's very interesting uh, to look, to me, I, it's hard, it would be hard for Tom, uh, for Jacob deGrom to overtake Tom Seaver overall just because of, and this is at no fault of Jacob deGrom's, but the impact that Tom Seaver uh, had and the way that he, you know, transformed or changed the attitude, uh, uh, perception of how opposing teams perceived the Mets from doormat to contender is something that uh, Jacob deGrom really can't do it. it it's, it's something and it's something that Tom Seaver did uh, and what, you know, puts him at a higher level. But in terms of statistics, it's really interesting to see uh, how Jacob deGrom is, you know, in a way slightly better uh, than Tom Seaver in some respects. If you look at stats, and I'm, I'm really happy that you pointed out uh, the stats that I used at the beginning, because uh, if I could, you know, uh, uh, move off the path for a little bit, I did, try to incorporate those analytics as well as those traditional stats. Me personally, I am not, not that I'm an old school person. Sometimes I just don't like, I don't use or don't, um, you know, look at those stats very much, almost more because I'm just, you know, I just, I can't really grasp those as well. I really appreciate people that use analytics really deeply. And I like um, certain people on Twitter who say, you know, hard hit rate or how their spin rate is. For me, it's like something I couldn't, you know, I can't grasp, but at the same time, uh, I appreciate uh, people who really do that kind of deep dive. So uh, I was used, so I had made sure to lay out um, the, you know, basic stats, obviously like, you know, home runs or, or you know, on-base percentage. And then I used, you know, uh, other stats, like more, you know, modern stats like war uh, and uh, other, you know, fielding-related statistics to emphasize a guy like a Buddy Harrelson or a Jerry Grody. So, 
Uh, I made sure to do that. And when it comes to pitching, I tried to use um, or judge players based on those stats that kind of even out or balance the different eras. Uh, in the in the case of trying to compare Jacob Degrom and Tom Seaver, um, ERA plus, you know, WHIP, uh, ERA to some extent, um, but it's 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 quite surprising. And I and I put this out on Twitter uh, last week when I was kind of promoting uh, Tom Seaver specifically. Um, the comparison between Seaver and, and Degrom and was surprised when I saw, but through their first six years, the uh, WHIP and the ERA plus for Jacob DeGrom is slightly better than Tom Seaver, which is just so surprising. But again, you know, in terms of impact on the franchise, it's very hard uh, for DeGrom almost, you know, I don't want to say impossible, but it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's never going to happen. I mean, it's, just, you know, the, the, the era and the time period that, that Jacob DeGrom is doing it. Um, Seaver did it when the, the team was a, you know, a perennial uh, cellar dweller. Uh, and he came in and kind of, you know, transformed the, the identity of the Mets. And that's, uh, almost an impossibility for Jacob DeGrom. So, um, we'll see if Jacob DeGrom can equal Tom Seaver's three Cy Youngs. Um, I wouldn't, obviously wouldn't put it past him to get that or more. Um, uh, but the, the debate will be very interesting, uh, as the years go on to see, you know, how, uh, Jacob DeGrom measures up to Tom Seaver, at, at least from a statistical standpoint. Well, sure. And, you know, until they start breaking out that statue of Jacob deGrom, it's pretty safe to say that Tom Seaver holds that number one spot. But there's still a lot of time. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of things can change in the next, let's say, five years. We'll just take his, his contract span. But, uh, you know, deGrom brings a title to Queens. Things things could be a lot different. Uh, of course, you know, touching Seaver's stature as far as uh, – putting this franchise on the map pretty much and putting it on its back at times, putting, uh, putting it on his back at times, I should say. Uh, yeah, I think, I, you know, there's uh, maybe there's a spot open for one B, but one A is probably going to yeah. be occupied by Seaver. But, you know, with so much future ahead of DeGrom, um, it had to just be kind of a, you know, it, it kind of screwing with your mind a little bit as far as, wow, like putting these numbers mm-hmm. together. Yeah, it's conceivable that he could overpass him one day, but yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, far, it, it's a long shot. We'll leave it at that. But now I, I saw. I'm just I'm kind of like flipping through my notes here. Now the generational debate that is, and I'm not going to give away who who overtook who, but the generational debate between Mike Piazza and Gary Carter is a heated one. And I have this with my uncles, with my cousins, with older friends, whatever, all the time. Because Carter, I mean, I was a, a kid. He was one of my first favorite players, but his his heyday was well before mine. <laughs> um, Mike Piazza was right in my wheelhouse. I mean, I was 17 in, in 2000 for the Subway Series, so I, he was right there. Mm-hmm. You know, comparing these two guys, and you could take all the stats, and you could take what they did for the organization, but, I mean, boy, it, you really had to toss around with that one, right? Yeah, I mean, from a personal perspective, um, I grew up. I'm a, I'm a little bit younger th- than you, Tim. I I became a Mets fan kind of through uh, my well, my dad's been a Mets fan since 1962, and one of the first things I ever saw that had to do with the Mets was like the 1986 uh, highlight video, and the guy that resonated with me was Gary Carter, and he became um, my kind of first favorite player, specifically from the Mets. Um, and then as time went on, and the Mets uh, we're about to get Mike Piazza. I, mean, I like Mike Piazza even when he was with the Dodgers. Uh, then the Mets get him. 
uh, and he becomes then the, you know, my next guy. So those are two players that I really, you know, have, have had a long association with, uh, personally. And I know all, a lot of other fans have as well. Um, it's, it's, you know, if you look at numbers, uh, Mike Piazza is far superior and he's a hall in the hall of fame as a Met. Gary Carter, I know wanted to be in the hall of fame as a Met, but he's definitely, uh, um, from a statistical standpoint, far better as an expo. Um, but he won a world series with the Mets. So that's, those are uh, different things that you said. You had to tussle with it. Um, uh, Carter's impact, you know, coming over to the Mets on a huge trade, uh, with the expos, a really surprising trade in the winter of 84, uh, was the last piece, uh, to that championship team. Um, you know, Keith Hernandez was the biggest trade, uh, but Carter can't be under, can't, Carter's trade can't be understated and got so many clutch hits. I mean, from the, from day one, literally when he, it's the first game, opening day, hits the home run, uh, to, uh, the hit in the game five of the NLCS of 86 to, uh, of course, prolonging game six of the World Series. There are a lot of, uh, big moments that Gary Carter had. And then Mike Piazza had, had, you know, despite not winning a championship, had so many big home runs, uh, against, you know, Roger Clemens or, you know, against the Yankees or the home run, who can't forget, who cannot forget the one against the Braves 10 days after September 11th. So, um, and that is one it's, it's, you're kind of, uh, uh, I had to, you know, um, I had to choose with my head and not with my heart because both are very special to me. And, and as you pointed out, special to you as well. So, uh, that was a tough one for me to, to try to determine who the starter was. I can safely say both are on the team. Uh, and I really enjoyed writing about both of them because of this personal connection, uh, at least from a fan standpoint that I had just in them being kind of two of my favorite players growing up. Oh, definitely. And I think that, um, at least from Carter's standpoint, I, that was the move that kind of put that team over the top. And of course, Hernandez brought them from mediocrity to, uh, to being more of a first class, first place ball club. Mm-hmm. And Carter just, that was the piece that put that team into hyperdrive. And, you know, again, this was before I was three in 1986, but I've done my, I've done my research. I've done my homework. Um, Boy, the, 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 what Carter brought to that roster might not have been as valuable per se in, in wins above replacement or what have you, uh, as Piazza's, uh, I guess contributions were to those late nineties, early two thousands teams. But boy, I, yeah, uh, I, I, I am not envious of, uh, of your position there on, on having to choose between those two. Now in the outfield. You spoke about one of the newer guys, Michael Conforto. Um, you also brought up an older name. And I guess when comparing these two, I I guess from from a, a now present look, Conforto's my guy. But I want to hear your take. Who's the player that you had lined up with him? So I, uh, as far as the starter in left field is concerned, I found it to be a pretty easy choice in Cleon Jones. Uh, we're talking about 86 and 2000 as far as impact players. 1969, uh, aside from pitching, uh, which was obviously a, a huge strength for the Mets that year, uh, their hitting, I mean, they, they were a little bit limited with their hitting, but, uh, Cleon Jones was by, was, was definitely their best hitter. Uh, hit, I believe, 340 or, or something around that, contended for the batting title, um, led the Mets in most, uh, major offensive categories. 
uh, also was, was pretty solid with the glove in left field, um, and was an all-star starter as well. Um, had some other, you know, good years. 73, he was injury plagued, but was huge in September when the Mets won from last to first, uh, hit six home runs in the last 10 games. So he, Cleon Jones was really the, the best, the Mets didn't have a lot of big hitters in their first two decades, but Cleon Jones was definitely, uh, the most significant, uh, hitter and also, um, the, the kind of really the first uh, homegrown hitter uh, that they that they had uh, over their first two decades before Strawberry came along. Uh, so I went with him uh, in, in, as a starter, and I felt that was a solid choice uh, in terms of his impact, in terms of how uh, he influenced the '69 team, at least in the batting order. Uh, Conforto was yeah. I, I, Brian, yeah. I don't want to cut you off. I just I I wanted to throw in my favorite Cleon Jones stat because again, I was like force fed the '69 Mets by my father growing up. Yeah. I just doing a little research from August 1st through the end of the regular season. Cleon Jones hit 324, 407, 401. Yeah. Yeah, bro. Like the, the slugging wasn't there, but that really wasn't his game. Yeah. But boy, what a, what a contributor. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump in no. on you, but. Oh, no, no. That's a great stat. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> and if you, and if uh, the older fans remember, I mean, I, I remember at least from reading it, uh, that was. You said August 1st. I believe it was July 30th at that the uh, famed incident where Gil Hodges removed him from a game, which now is kind of apocryphal in terms of it looking like Gil Hodges showed him up because uh, he, he came out of the field in a wet day at Chase Stadium against the Astros. And uh, Gil Hodges walked out on the field after a hot, after a Cleon Jones kind of uh, tentatively went toward a, a ball that went uh, in the left field. Uh, and everyone kind of, the rest of the team kind of thought, wow, if he's going out there to remove the all-star starter, um, you know, I, <laughs> I better, you know, uh, tighten up or I better at least play better or, or it kind of lit a fire under the team. Uh, since we've kind of heard Cleon Jones say, hey, it really wasn't as big of a deal, uh, as people made it out to be. Um, but yeah, after that, not only did Cleon Jones get hot, but the entire team did. Uh, and as you said, power numbers, um, that was not, Cleon's thing, and that was kind of one way of like trying to compare uh, different eras, you know, and especially uh, the the periods in which what the Mets needed. I mean, back in '69, the Mets needed to get timely hits; they weren't asking for you know the three run homer. Uh, so Cleon Jones delivered in that respect. Uh, and although his power numbers aren't significant as far as getting big hits uh, and getting a lot of hits, he he certainly delivered in that capacity. Oh, for sure. Now, um, I just I, I wanted to hear you continue on to on to Conforto a little bit, and I think, you know, I was going to lead into Conforto. I do want to hear you talk about Gil Hodges some more, because <laughs> sure. yeah. boy, he he really was a master motivator. And whether that was to let everyone else know that maybe their jobs weren't safe, or just to kind of kickstart Cleon Jones, um, you know, whatever he did, it worked. <laughs> but you listed, I guess, Valentine. You listed Davey Johnson. Um, wh- how do you, I guess what, what my real question would be was, how do you feel that the managerial jobs have changed going from Gil Hodges to Davey Johnson to Bobby Valentine, even into newer times into maybe not Terry Collins. Cause he was kind of that old school guy, but look mm-hmm. at now you have a Luis Rojas. Um, what, like, I guess doing your deep dive into every aspect of this organization. How do you feel about, I guess, the transition of the, I guess, the job description of a manager? 
And yeah, I, I hate to, I hate to detract from the book, but it, it was no. it was a question I had in my mind that I figured down would yeah. be good good no. time as ever. It's no, it's changed so much. I mean, you could not uh, put someone like Gil Hodges into today's world because that would never fly. And I don't know if Gil Hodges. I know Gil Hodges had a lot of input in player in personnel decisions, but I don't know in terms of dealing with uh, personalities. Uh, he would not be as successful. Uh, as he was in 1969, and we know how successful he was. Um, someone like Davey Johnson, maybe he, uh, he would succeed. He would definitely succeed with the players. I don't know if that would, it would ever work with uh, a GM telling him what to do because we know he had his uh, run-ins with uh, Frank Cashin in terms of decision-making and uh, personnel decisions that Cashin made that Johnson did not agree with. At least that's what Davey Johnson has said. Um and the same goes with Bobby Valentine. I don't know if he would. Uh, yeah, we all know that he didn't get along with uh, Steve Phillips, um, you know, spectacularly at, at times. Um, and I don't, think, I don't foresee Valentine ever getting along or getting, uh, being, um, or at least adapting to how the managerial role is today. Uh, when we talk about Gil Hodges, and I, and this applies to all the players, and I kind of touched on it. I always looked at these players or manager or what have you in the era they performed. And I didn't try to say, Hey, how would, you know, Cleon Jones do today? Because that would be unfair because the team, you know, the teams are totally different. The ears are totally different. Uh, how pitchers pitch you is totally different. So I tried to see how, like how important were these players in the time that they played? Uh, and in the, in the case of a manager, how did, you know, they deal with their players or how did they, their teams do in the time that they were managing. And for Gil Hodges, um, with all due respect to Davey Johnson, I could, you know, I can't, I can't think of a, we, you know, Seaver in terms of a player was the most impactful person in, uh, most impactful player in Mets history. Gil Hodges might be, uh, the most impactful individual, especially, uh, in, in changing the identity of the Mets and changing them from just, you know, lovable losers into formidable winners. Uh, and I couldn't see another manager doing what Gil Hodges did with the 69 Mets. I mean, that's how important he was to that team. Oh, most definitely. And I think that, um, I mean, at that point in the franchise's history, uh, I know you kind of alluded to him having more control over personnel decisions, but that can't, that kind of came from the top. And you look up at, uh, at Joan Payson, who I, I hate to be a, a spoiler alert. Joan Payson is the greatest owner in the history of the franchise. Everybody knew that already anyway, but, <laughs> um, you know, that kind of free reign, I guess you could say came from the top as the Mets transition now into hopefully <laughs> new ownership um, and the, you know, the job description changes and the front office is so expanded now, you know, do you feel like this next ownership hire should be in the vein of, of a Joan Payson who, who always put the team first? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's very important. I mean, Joan Payson, what, what she did, uh, in buying the Mets, uh, from the start, she kind of, uh, established that, um, kind of loyalty because she was that kind of, she had that kind of loyalty. And in a sense, the fans could, you know, aside from, you know, the, the bankroll that she had, they could kind of relate to her and say, Hey, you know, she's, a, if she's as loyal and she, and she stayed out of the way. She didn't, you know, meddle in any kind of decisions. I think she made, you know, important decisions, uh, that needed her input, but she wasn't, uh, getting in the way, if, if you know what I mean. So uh, I think she kind of established um, 
kind of that, that, that loyalty that fans have had since day one, uh, where she was, you know, sitting up there in the, in the box seat. You know, she didn't like to sit in the owner's suite. She liked to sit up in the crowd. Uh, and I, I, I can, you know, safely say that I think fans kind of could re- relate to her, uh, in every respect except, you know, how deep her pockets were. Oh, sure. And I think that her, um, her appeal to the fan base was because that, you know, all she just wanted her team to win. She was a noted avid baseball fan. Um, she mixed it up with the fans. She mixed it up with the players. The players adored her. And I yeah. think the fans kind of fed off that love. And I think um, they saw that the players trusted her, which even at that time, owners kind of had that kind of uh, stigma about them that, oh, you know, it's it's not, not necessarily us first them um, per se. Yeah. But uh, I guess, the, no, but the visual, I guess the open – honesty and trust and the lack of meddling, which yeah. even then, I mean, you can go back and look at, um, uh, who was it? Comiskey in, in Chicago who kind of had his hand in things all the time. And uh, who was the next guy in Chicago? Uh, Vick? Go back. Yeah. Uh, Vick, I'm sorry. Uh, for all, you know, for all his upside had some downsides as well, but you know, just, it, I wasn't alive at the time, so I really don't know, but it just seems so unheard of looking back and seeing that type of love and passion between the front office ownership and, and the fan base and, and the players. Um, it was just harmony. It felt like an absolutely perfect time in Mets history. And you just hope that they could replicate or recreate that. But, uh, something, guess, close to it. something close to it. Yeah. Something, something close to it. Exactly. I, we, we could all use a miracle, but, um, I guess you touched on Michael Conforto a bit in the book, and I don't want to give away too much, but as far as his trajectory moving forward, do you feel that he's still on that path to be among the elite? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I see him, I, you know, if if what he did, I mean, I know that he's kind of been up and down. Overall, some some of his seasons have been pretty pretty good. Uh, last year especially, um, that was his, his best season by far. I think in 2017 he was on his way. Uh, to a year that probably would have been similar to what he produced this year uh, before that freak uh, shoulder injury happened. Uh, and I, yeah, I can foresee him getting, you know, close to 30 home runs um, kind of in the, in the way of uh, kind of like Pete Alonso. I don't you know think he needs to hit 30. Um, I would really like to see him uh, spray the ball to all fields as opposed to trying to pull the ball and trying to hit, him, hit it over the fence. Um, you know, Pete Alonso doesn't need to hit 53 home runs this year. Uh, Michael Gaffer doesn't need to hit 30. Um, I think if he hits 25 and you know has a OPS above 140 again, I think that would be that would be fantastic. And I think if other guys uh, are healthy in the lineup, I'm talking about Cespedes, <laughs> if he's in there as well, I mean that would just kind of resonate and kind of it would filter down to all the rest of the hitters, Conforto especially. Uh, so. I can I see him you know and I hope the Mets sign him long term but I see another year that uh, that is similar to what it was last year and again if he's uh, if he has the power numbers that are that are almost like last year and kind of can improve in those other areas like get it on base and getting a better batting average uh, that will be uh, to me a, a great sign that he's on the, the trajectory of being the superstar that we all thought he could be. I think he's well on his way, and just with the support around him on this current roster, I mean, it's impressive. Um, I mean, if you've listened to me on the show, if you've seen me on Twitter, if you've read read me on MMO, uh, you know I, I'm an optimistic Mets fan. Always have been. Can't turn it off. Um, how how are you feeling heading into the season? Do you think this is a, an NL East, a NL East division 
you know, competing team? Yeah, I know. I think, I definitely think it is. Um, I, you know, I can't, uh, be so sure in saying that they're going to win the division just with the other three teams, uh, in there. And I'm not talking about the Marlins, the three other contenders. <laughs> um, that's, you know, the biggest impediment to the Mets winning, uh, the NL East. Uh, the Braves, who I still think are very good despite losing, you know, Josh Donaldson. Um, the Nationals, despite losing Rendon, still think are very strong because I think Juan Soto is only getting better. Um, and the Phillies, I can't imagine they're going to be as disappointing as they were uh, last year. And of course they got Zach Wheeler. Um, so I see that the, and the Mets, let's face it, they will live and die by the bullpen to me. That's, that's, that's the uh, easy answer as far as like the X factor. Um, you know, I, as we're talking yesterday, Edwin Diaz was in mid-season form, or I guess mid-2019 form. Um, <laughs> I don't put a lot of stock in that um, because I think a lot of times in spring training, pitchers are working on certain pitches and uh, they're working on a certain delivery, and I think his delivery might have been a little different. Um, but, you know, if he's working out the kinks and he gets his bad days out of the way here, that's fine by me. Um, as long as he, you know, kind of uh, has a little bit of a resurgence, uh, that's that'll be uh, tremendous. And if Batances is healthy, which he certainly wasn't last year, uh, he's healthy and Familia is a little bit better, um, and Lugo is like he was last year, uh, then this is this is a you know a 90 win team, and I think 90 definitely wins the division. Uh, so yeah, like I said, the bullpen will determine the fate of the Mets. Um, not just, you know, how the starting rotation does or the, the, the lineup does. Oh, for sure. And I think um, even, you know, career averages from Diaz and Familia would put this team, you know, right up there. Um, do you think the Mets did enough to replace Wheeler in the rotation? Uh, I originally wanted them to re-sign Wheeler. Uh, I thought oh, that, sure. I think we I, all I thought that they just needed to, to do it because there was not a lot of depth in terms of the free agent market. Um I, you know, if they're going to go with a five or even a six man rotation, uh, and kind of, you know, toggle between Waka and, um, and Rick Porcello and, and maybe Steven Matz, although I think Steven Matz should be solidly in the rotation, uh, that, that could work. Um, I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm a little unsure if, if that, if that, uh, those two, uh, Waka and Porcello re- replaces Wheeler, uh, although I do like, um, the starting rotation, the top three at least, with the addition of Stroman, um, better than I like the starting rotation, the top three at the beginning of last year. So uh, I think they have improved in that in that respect. Um, a little bit still just uh, the jury is still out in terms of the back end of the rotation and what they're going to do. I, I know they said they're going to possibly uh, make, you know, use an opener for games possibly as Steven Matt starts. And I don't know if you want to like kind of mess with People's rhythm, although I know Stephen Metz has struggled in the first inning. Um, I, you know, if he comes in the first inning, is he going to struggle again? It doesn't matter if it's the first inning or the third inning. So I don't know if that matters. So I don't, I don't want to mess with pitchers' rhythm, pitchers especially. I don't want to mess with their rhythm. So, um, I would just rather go with a five man rotation and whether that's Waka or Porcello, whoever wins that battle in spring training, I'm good with that. Um, but I'm a little bit hesitant to say that that's a, a suitable replacement for someone like Zach Wheeler. Oh, for sure. And I think, um, you know, for, for all of Wheeler's inconsistencies, um, yeah, he really, he just brought so much value. Um, and when he got hot, boy, he got hot. Yeah. I do like Porcello. I think that, um, 
just the type of control that he brings, the type of stability he'll bring to the back end is is really just a very appealing um, from a fan perspective. I think Waka's going to surprise a lot of people this year. I think he's going to be effective. I think he's going to be efficient. Um, and Matt's, I mean, for a stretch last season, Matt's was one of the best pitchers in the National League. Um, this is going over like seven starts between August and September. He had a sub two ERA. Uh, really, just very impressive stuff. Whether he can find that groove again and stay in it, that's, you know, that's the, the big battle here. But, um, I mean, it's never been a problem for any team in the history of baseball to have too many good players. And it kind of seems like the Mets are protecting themselves. I mean, we're, we're, we can look across across town right now, yeah. and the Yankees are dealing with injuries already. And uh, it's almost inevitable that this is going to happen. But, boy, the Mets have uh, really 1 through 26. There are viable major league you know, level, uh, if not elite major league level, pieces mm-hmm. and um that, that's more than you can say for this team in, in, in a pretty long time I, i'm i'm pretty excited <laughs> yeah no they they have what they lacked especially in the last couple of years is depth and i think they have that this year uh, and as you pointed out that's a great point you can't have enough good starting pitching um so i like the fact that they added you know extra starting pitching i mean if that is going to together uh you know replace Someone like Wheeler or, you know, it will be as effective. And, and if, you know, we'll see it with, if Waka and Porcello, um, are at, you know, kind of regain their old form. Um, but yeah, you, you cause you, you know that someone's going to go down. I hate to say it. I hate to sound like a pessimist, but someone is going to get hurt, whether it's for a short period of time or possibly a long period of time. And you have to be ready. And, and I think a lot of, uh, championship level teams, they have, parts that can replace anyone that goes down. If you, you know, I think, you know, a couple of years ago, um, the Mets had a good, good pieces, but like one person went down and like the whole rest of the structure just crumbled, uh, and they fell apart. So that's what the Mets cannot afford to have is like, you know, just a, a lack of, of, of depth is, is something that will just would kill them. And I don't think, and they don't have that this year. As you said, I think one to 26 is a pretty solid team. Yeah. Uh, who, do you have a 26 picked out yet? Mine's Luis Guillorme. I think he has to make this ball club, but I, you know what? I really like, I like him as like a defensive replacement. I, he is so, he is so, I like how he like releases the ball, like on a double play or just, you know, grabbing a ground ball. Um, and maybe we can count on him for one more eighth inning home run. I don't know. But, oh yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah, I like having a defensive replacement and, and for anyone who reads the book, I do have not a defensive replacement, but I have one guy on there, and I'm not going to say who it is. Well, I think I put on there, he, he was a great offensive player, um, but he had great defensive numbers, and I kind of had that in mind when I put him on the team. So as so right. kind of ties into the book. But, um, yeah, Giorme is probably my 26th guy. I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the guy uh, yesterday, Ryan. Ryan Cordell. Cordell, the guy who overslid at second base. Uh, <laughs> playing center field. I don't think he makes the team, but he was fun to watch him yesterday. Um, I, I like him as AAA depth, and, and I love that Syracuse is just you know a bus ride away now. They're not coming back from Vegas, so okay. if yeah. we need a Ryan Cordell, he's you know he's here that day. I, I um, yeah, I, I like it all. I'm over the moon. Uh, you know, bit wait. Before we shout out, before we sign off here, quick shout out to DJ Tate. He's one of our Mets fan friends from across the pond. He's over in England. 
Uh, DJ, I forgot to shout you out last week when you had a question for us. You said, where, where are our heads at? And uh, I think we answered the question, but I just wanted to say hey, hey to our friends over across the pond. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, at least I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident. Uh, Brian, do you have a, a win number? I know you put 90. If the bullpen comes through, this is a 90-win team. Do you think you, they'll stick to that? You think you're going to put that as your over-under? Over I don't want to go that high. I'm, I'm an optimist, but I'm not that much of an optimist. I will go, I think I said 88. I think that's what some projection had. Some silly computer had them at. I would go with 88 wins, um, and I'm going to make my prediction as, as of this moment, it could change between now and opening day, would be that that is a wild card spot, uh, and it probably falls one or two games short of the division. I, I'm, you know, for no particularly great reason. I pick, I'm picking the Braves right now to win the division, uh, partially because I think they, I still think they have uh, great young talent and they, of course, have proven that they, they can win and also to jinx them. Get them. I just saw Freddie Freeman got hurt. I haven't seen oh. the diagnosis yet, but uh, I think I that was like, on Wednesday. I do like Freddie Freeman. I think he's oh, love him. Love him, love him, love him. Great ball player. Really fun to watch. Yeah. But, um, all right, Brian, uh, Everyone can find your book. I know it's on Amazon. Yes. Everything's um, on Amazon now. Excellent. And, and yeah, if anyone wants to uh, buy it's on Amazon, it's on Barnes & Noble, major uh, booksellers, and if people are interested in a signed copy, I'm happy to provide one. Uh, if you go, you can direct message me on Twitter, at BrianWright86. Excellent. And um, all right. I think that is all. I wanted to say I had one more question, but I, I think I think we hit it, we touched on everything. No, I did. I think we yeah we touched all the bases and even talked about the current Mets. So uh, just talking to you, I get I get, I'm very excited about the season, and we're uh, just under a month out. So uh, and I'm actually going to be up uh, in New York. I live in Washington D.C. I had to suffer through the being in the middle of Nats country as they won the World Series and Ooh. watching. And being with all the fans who I, I joke, I, all these fans, all these friends that I know who became Nats fans all of a sudden in October, uh, like, <laughs> and the radio silence on social media, uh, with all these, all these people who I, I jokingly say they joined the marathon at mile 26. Um, <laughs> we're talking about, <laughs> we, we look at us, we're winning, we, we, and I'm just thinking, oh my God, I've dreamed, dreamt my whole life about seeing the Mets win the World Series. And now you guys, I have to watch everyone else do it, have to live through that. I, um, it's, it was uh, pretty tough. I don't know when I'll go back to Nats Park, but I'm definitely uh, coming up to New York for opening day uh, 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 adjacent to a few interviews and appearances I'll be doing for the book. So uh, really excited about not only just those appearances, but the season in general. Excellent. Well, everybody, um, there will be a link to, I guess, the, the page where you can uh, order the book, I guess, from multiple places. We'll put the publisher link. We'll put the Amazon link up on uh, the Metsmerized post. I'll go ahead and add it to the Twitter post as well. Uh, of course, if you enjoyed the show, uh, subscribe, five-star review, all that fun stuff. Give Brian a follow on Twitter. Um, of course, buy the book, guys. It's really It was a terrific read. It was really fun. Uh, it is certainly a conversation starter. Break it out in front of family and friends. And uh, you know, point out your favorite debate topic, and it will it will gather some uh, some some decent conversation. I can promise you that. I think me and my brother were already arguing a couple of points about this last time I spoke to him. But please, folks, do check it out. Um, of course, always check in on Simply Amazing. Always check in at Metsmerized. 
Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Tim, for having me on. Oh, anytime, dude. We'll have to have you back during the season for sure. Yeah, I'd love to come back on. All right, everybody. So, yeah, uh, check you out next time. Brian, what do we say at the end, buddy? Let's go, Mets. Let's go, Mets. Yeah. All right, folks. We'll see you next time. Let's go!